Okay. Hi, this is James Shokum, host of Web Comics Reviews and Interviews. Today we're with Trent Gander, writer. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. All right. Hello, I'm Trent Gander, obviously. Uh, I've been writing for a very long time now, over 10 years in various capacities. And today we're going to be talking about what goes into storytelling. For me, storytelling is one of those skills like conversation that's been starting to die off over the years. And what we're seeing today isn't the same level of quality than we saw 15, maybe five years ago. And so if you want to be able to do good storytelling, you have to be able to understand the basics of it in order to be able to grow what you're trying to tell people into its fullest potential. Because I've seen a lot of waste potential over the years, especially in some recent movies and franchises that I've been watching. Okay, so when you start saying you've seen a definite drop-off in quality, how do you mean that exactly? Uh, I mean that I have actually a perfect example. Uh, the recent trilogy within the Star Wars universe. So I was really excited about the expansion of Star Wars because I've been following it for years. It was one of my favorite genres. I watched the first movie of the, the new trilogy, and I found it really lacking. It wasn't that it was redoing its... It's plot again. It wasn't that it was retelling a story because there are a number of books out there that say there's 22 to 7 basic plots that every story follows. So it gives you a building block to expand your idea. So your story's been told before, but maybe not in the same way that you're going to tell it. So I was fine with that. However, there were a few things that were lacking in that first movie, and that it was four major scenes loosely tied together. Now, if you go back to the original Star Wars, Star Wars A New Hope, you have obviously a lot of world building going on. It was either the very first one or was going to be the only Star Wars that we would have known. So we find out about the worlds and through imagery and how people interact with each other, how people phrase things, we find a lot of information out, which is a lot easier to do in film and comic books than it is just written word. It does it in such a way that we find Luke Skywalker's on a, in a very austere planet, but we also have it that there's a lot of technology at the same time. We are able to see that the world is dynamic because there's all these different cultures going on. In the new Star Wars, I saw that they relied a lot more on people kind of have a general idea of Star Wars. All right, people have, have at least heard of Star Wars, so they have a little bit of a preconceived idea of, okay, there's stars and there's wars and there's all this stuff going on. But what we see in the new iteration is it's we start to build the character. We start, we start to follow Rey. And we see her struggles and her kind of quaint life, and then we have action. We have action, and we, we see the major antagonist in the form of Kylo Ren. And we see that he's a bad guy, and then we, we have these four different stories going on at once. We have um, Finn, and I forget the, the other one's name, the, the smuggler who is trying to actually get the information to the Rebel Alliance. And we have those four things. That was, that's completely fine. But 
when we start to see the interaction between Finn and the, the ace fighter pilot, we get a really great reaction. We see them acting like normal people. We can sympathize with them. We got two, two guys who are probably going to either be best friends or in some people's minds lovers, but they don't explore that as much and they don't emphasize that dynamic as well as they could it's like just as it starts to blossom they just kind of switch to something else and that is one of the really hard things to balance in a story it's like okay is the potential that i'm seeing for this this particular aspect of the story how much am i going to let it grow before i switch to something else and how much am i going to bring that back up because we have the main plot then we have a number of subplots. There should always be at least one subplot going on. It doesn't have to be big. It, has, it can be anything like uh, like the squirrel in Ice Age, the squirrel chasing that acorn. That was an entire subplot into itself, and it was light, and it was funny, and helped uh, bring levity to the entire situation, no matter how serious it is. So there's just these little things you can pepper throughout your writing and pepper throughout your storytelling to add depth. Because the other problem that I had with the, the newer Star Wars was that it – because I've only seen the first one in Rogue One for the new iteration of Star Wars – is that we have kind of two-dimensional things. And what I mean by that is that when you walk up to somebody, not necessarily in the street, when you start to get to know someone, you obviously expect that they've done things that you haven't known seen or experienced and as you're getting to know them better and having a conversation with them you learn a bit about that experience so another thing to remember when you're building a character is that they have a backstory and while we start to see some of that backstory shown with characters like ray or not too much with finn because he was born in the cloisters for the equivalents of stormtroopers he really doesn't have a backstory. He has a little bit of it where they talk about, well, I was the I was the trash guy. There, we have a backstory then that's introduced later. And that's a perfect example of having a backstory, but not everyone needs to know that. But that backstory has, could be a little bit longer, a little bit more fleshed out. And you don't need to have every part of the backstory show. But you as a writer still need to know that backstory exists. A perfect example I was looking at before uh, I was going to appear on the show was the Mad Max series. I was watching a very good kind of summary of, of Mad Max, and one of the things that struck me was for each of the characters in the original Mad Max, the Road Warrior, each uh, character that we see on the screen had – a multi-page backstory to them from everything from their clothing to the how and the why they're part of the Mad Max universe was explored by the authors. And so the, uh, the review brought up like we can see which individual gets killed on screen or killed off screen or has damage happen to them. And we recognize, Hey, that was the guy I saw 20 to 30 minutes ago. Having a backstory and having each character be unique to an extent gives us the opportunity to be able to show that the world is real. It's not going to be like, okay, here's a billion stormtroopers or clone troopers. They're all the same. 
they're they're different and they have to be different in order to build that dynamic world which is what we're trying to do with storytelling and in order to do that we have to focus on how are we sharing the information that we want to communicate now Obviously, Star Wars has a lot of imagery. They harken back to, obviously, Nazi Germany with a lot of the colors and names that they use for the Empire. They're trying to show that this is the bad guys. These are the people who are oppressing individuals, crushing them under the boot heel of tyranny. And then we have the very obvious example of the Death Star blowing up Alderaan saying they really don't care about people to the extent that they will – uh, go out of their way to help individuals. They're more about maintaining power, control, and status within their own structure than compared to the Rebel Alliance, who has such few resources and loses so many individuals trying to help other people. So we have that imagery going for us to help solidify the dynamic struggle that's going on in the minds of the viewer. The other aspect that goes with that is tiny details on the individual. So instead of in verbal or narrative license saying, this man is a bachelor, he comes back to his bachelor pad and does bachelor things. We come in, we see he's tired, he's been working a long day by him dropping his heavy bag on the floor. His coffee table is covered with takeout and maybe girly mags or something like that. And he goes to his fridge, and the first thing he does once he gets in the door is have a drink. Have a drink. We start taking what people think they know about certain aspects of people, and we use that to our advantage in order to paint a picture through images rather than telling them. And that's one of the problems that aspiring writers have a problem with. They tell too much to their reader rather than show what their reader needs to see. So, yeah, I can tell you that the Mona Lisa is one of the most famous uh, pieces of art on the planet. Or I can show you a picture of the Mona Lisa and I can show you it behind security glass with guards around it and convey that same message that it has some sort of importance to the world around it enough that it needs to be under lock and key. Okay, let's unpack a little bit of that. Uh, first off, when it comes to the expectations you've encountered, how much of that do you think is because we've been doing storytelling for so long that – we're starting to want people – we're basically going with a higher bar than we used to. I mean if we start looking at, say, the Greek myths and all that, it was pretty much simplistic storyteller. It was just simply, uh, you know, let's tease these big, huge, epic things and let's have them described to us. And we've gone all the way from that to we've got a lot more expectations. We want characters with backstory, with emotion. We actually want to actually be shown this stuff and that. Basically, do you think a lot of the problems you're having with that – and trust me, you're not the only one is that we're expecting a lot more from our stories because we've been at it for so long? Uh, that, that is actually a really good question. I personally hold myself to a high bar in what I produce myself. And one of the bars that I hold for myself is that if I am going to tell a story, would I read it? So there's also the, the question of which part of the population am I making the story for? 
uh, the story I tell to, you know, a six-year-old child on the TV is not going to be the same as I tell someone who's in their 60s who's absolutely experienced in a lot of things. So we have to identify our audience. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to dumb down a plot or lower the quality in order to get the result that we want. You can still have a simplistic story and have it be a good story. I think what we're actually seeing is people trying to reinvent the wheel, like we were talking about before we actually got on, that they're trying – they think that what they're about to do has never been done before. And because of that, it has to be new. It has to be shocking when it's actually you're building on a structure that has been around for so long that you don't even realize it. And once you realize that there is kind of a recipe for success, it makes it a lot easier on you because like, okay, I'm going to be retelling something, but it's going to be how I tell it. There's there's still going to be that baseline, that original idea. That's going to be mirrored to an extent, but it's going to be different. You know how it, how reflections kind of, depending on how clear the glass is, reflections kind of alter things just a little bit. So, a perfect example within movie cinema is Seven Samurai: The Magnificent Seven. We have a group. We have the group of skilled individuals. They come in, they solve a problem, and then they leave. Each of them uses an iconic part of the culture that they find themselves in. For the Japanese, it was samurai. For the U.S., it was cowboys. And so we have the story of romanticized past and um, the struggle of individuals who are skilled versus individuals who are causing a problem. And we get into aspects such as uh, the hero with a thousand faces which was a book I think was written by a guy named Campbell uh, probably 20 years back now. And it talks about that there's a cycle within a hero story. There's the part where he rises to uh, being a hero, to being known, to being that individual that people look up and aspire to be. And then we have his descent into, we can call it poverty or uh, the, hitting the bottom of the barrel and have him technically go through a process of being destroyed and then once he's absolutely a mess we have the rebirth so it's that whole christ messiah kind of uh view where we start off in certain things for like fist of the north star we have a guy who's obviously skilled but he's at the bottom of the barrel he's doing something uh because something has happened to him. He, it's written on his physical form because he's the man with the seven scars. And as we go through that process, we see him rise from being this lowly nomad who suddenly has this uh, strangely skilled, strangely highly skilled in uh, martial arts to, oh, he was one of the, the few people trained in this martial art. And he's slowly climbing his way back up to prominence as he goes throughout the series. So going back to the original question, are the is the bar too high from what we've been doing? I think that the problem is that the standard really hasn't been maintained. And while there's a lot of people who want to tell stories, there's not a lot of people who want to put in the effort to try to make that story great. And it's not necessarily great through how much stuff you put in it. 
is great because of how simple and how easy it is to communicate to somebody else. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to transmit information and ideals to somebody through what we put out. So it's, it's like having a conversation with someone. You know, you can have a conversation with someone. And it looks like you can tell when it's just not connecting. And it's like, okay, maybe what I've been trying to do has been wrong. Maybe I've, maybe I haven't explained it clearly enough. Maybe I've gone too complex. But with comic books and movies, it's a little bit easier because people who can see can really understand pictures. So like red equals anger or some sort of royalty. It catches our eye like nothing else because it's this very bold color. It signifies danger to us or something that causes our blood pressure to rise or our heart to beat faster. And it's generally why we say people are seeing red when they're angry because that's that visceral emotion. And we kind of have the blood go up in our eye sockets and we're like, ah, ah, ah. and it, it's a way that we can slightly curve someone's view of something with the environment around them rather than saying, you feel angry. No, we, we show the reaction of the story we're telling. We show the reaction of the world to that individual or to that group of individuals. And we show that suddenly the vein in his neck is just throbbing as he grinds his teeth. Obviously, he's having a reaction to something compared to saying, Bob's angry, which paints a better picture. Grinding teeth and having a throbbing vein in your neck or Bob's angry. Definitely. I mean, you definitely are seeing a lot of people are trying to just, I think it's because we got so many writers and everybody's basically trying to just do what they think is right. So yeah, I can definitely see that. Uh, first off, the obligatory mention. Um, since you did do Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven, I do have to close it out with uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. I've never seen it, but everything ties back into it when we're dealing with storytelling. It's it's amazing how interconnected things are, but it does tend to mean that there is a lot of storytellers and there's not enough time in the day to watch all of them. That's sort of what I was going into. You know, I wasn't saying necessarily that the bar is risen or that we're not necessarily maintaining. I'm just observing that we tend to expect a lot more from storytellers now, mainly because there's so many of them out there compared to, you know, everybody tells Travis to tell their own story now. You've got all the independent press and all that, so you've got a lot of people publishing or trying to publish, and it's just you've got a lot more people telling stories than you used to. Plus, like I said, we've been at it for a little bit longer, so I'm not just saying the bar's been placed high. I'm just saying that basically, or that people aren't living up to that bar. What I'm saying is that basically things we we just expect a lot more, especially if we've got that much talent out there trying to do whatever they do. Oh yeah, there's definitely a lot more access than there was a hundred to a thousand years ago. I'm sure there was hundreds, if not thousands, of independent storytellers during the the medieval Renaissance or the medieval Renaissance period who were just going around telling stories. The thing of it is that we don't have records of that or we don't have as good of access to those records as we do to like webtoons or webcomics today. So we're, we're probably at the, the same problem that we had back then of recording access and seeing the stories as they're being developed. The, 
the guy down the road who tells stories to his kids that he made up. He's a storyteller. But the access that everyone has doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to hear his story. But with the Internet today and, as you said, the number of different um, publishing companies that are out there that allow that to be there, the likelihood of people hearing that story grows than much larger than it did even just 60 years ago. Actually, I sort of debate that. I mean, yeah, you've got a lot more people that have access to their stuff being recorded, but at the same time, you've got such a huge market, you actually have to pick and choose a lot more carefully. So just because there's a lot more people out there, or a lot more publishing out there, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be seeing a lot more stories necessarily being actually listened to. Where does I know that's got to sound? Oh, that is actually really true, because... Technically, everyone is a storyteller in their own right, even if they just told you, hey, I went to the store today and picked up some milk. Depending on how they tell that, it can be really interesting or can be the most boring thing you have ever heard, ever. And because of that, it's it's always hard to choose who do you who do you want to listen to. It really does come down to what are what are my preferences as a as a storyteller consumer, shall we say. So, like, there's the eternal debate of which is better, DC versus Marvel. There are some people who like both. There are some people who swear by one or the other. It all comes down to which ones do you want to read about? What stories do you like? There's, like, a million different superheroes on either side of the aisle, and each of them doesn't have a story that interests me. But some of them are like, I really want to hear more about this guy's experience or – Maybe I want to hear about both of them, but they're on different sides of the, for lack of a better term, comic uh, political line. So it's like I want to hear more about Captain America and Iron Man, but I also want to find out about you know Batman and the Green Lantern Corps. It's all about what you, as someone who's going to be reading it, wants to listen to. So just because you pitch a story to somebody and they don't want to hear it doesn't necessarily mean your story's bad or that the story isn't worth telling. It's just that you found a group of people who doesn't want to who don't want to listen to that particular story. So your your audience is out there. I've come across a lot of weird audiences who want to listen to a lot of weird stuff. It just doesn't mean that that's my scene. I want to listen to something else. But somebody has to be able to come in and tell them the story they want to listen to. And that's where the beauty of having so much access, so many people producing so many different things, and such a variety of things being made, it makes it so much better for people who want to explore new things or find things that are similar to their tastes. It makes it easier for them to have access to it, and that's the that's the, the benefit that we have today that I think that we had in the past. So, I mean, it's just sort of interesting. Marketing is become. I mean, marketing has always been part of having to be a writer, but now it just seems like it's a bigger part of it. But uh, when it comes to developing a story, what are the things that you'd like to see people develop more on? Uh, I would like to see them. I would like to them to create non Mary Sue characters. All right, I want to see someone who is. 
in depth because I encounter I like encountering people who have depth to them. I don't want to see a generic cookie cutter antagonist protagonist whatever you want. It doesn't necessarily mean I want to see another basic white guy saving the world. I want to see someone who is interesting enough and who has enough uh, facets to their personality to keep my attention. Uh, there has been a, in my, at least in my opinion, a larger amount of single point uh, heroes. So they're a hero because of one singular aspect of their personality. But there's a lot of other parts of the personality that are left untouched. So to to give an example with Spider-Man, we see he has a very pivotal point in his life where he decides to become a hero, which is obviously the death of Uncle Ben. That is not part of his personality. That is an external factor that impacts him so much. He makes a conscious decision to try to live a better life, to live up to that expectation that Uncle Ben had or personified the uh what i'm talking about is if we focus on peter parker only being oh yeah he's a spider and they hit on him being a spider over and over and over and over and over again no him being bit by a radioactive spider and taking on uh, spider-like traits or being smart enough to develop web cartridges and stuff like that. All that is part of what makes Peter Parker Peter Parker. It's not the main show. We're seeing how Peter Parker reacts to the new world he finds himself in and also the the new problems that he's encountering with trying to balance, at least in some of the newer films, work, school, everything else, social interactions with being Spider-Man and with all the new problems of Dr. Octopus, the Green Goblin, the Kingpin, random crime syndicates, and even people like Electro, all coming up and being introduced into what would have been a normal journalist job. So it's it's taking it's focusing too much on one aspect of what makes an individual an individual and inflating it to be the entirety of the individual. That is one of the problems that I see the most is that it's one-point marketing, for lack of a better term. Watch this person because they're this thing. It's like, okay, that's nice, but what else do they do? I want to be able to, to connect with the, uh, the individual a little bit better. So we have the situations they find themselves in, whether it's bullying or uh, being down in the dumps about losing a job or – depression or something else that's part of the character and that obviously is going to infect or effect the entire story and how they react to things but it's not the entire story the story is how do they react how do they interact with the world around them with these aspects affecting them yeah i think a lot of it has to do with you have way too many marketers out there trying to justify their jobs because you're starting to see it pretty much all over the place where, you know, everybody's trying to create something identifiable, create the brand, define it that way. And it's starting to have a really bad spillover into the actual writing itself. I can agree with that. I can agree with that 100 percent. And it is like you said, that's the problem with mo- the modern day is that we have so much marketing. Uh 
just earlier this week, I had a conversation with a guy. I said, I don't want to sell a product that I have to try to force someone to buy it. I want my product to be good enough that it kind of sells itself. People can take it or leave it. It may not be what they want, but I want my product to be able to stand on its own two feet, which in this case is going to be a story. The story can be super simple, but the simple stories are generally the longest lived. So I want I want the story to be worth telling. I don't want to have to paint it neon colors and put a bunch of signs to have people come and read it. I want the one person who might only look into the the hole in the wall establishments and come across and be like, this is interesting. And they tell their friends about it who they think wants to hear the story or they found the story really great. It's like, well, you should read this too because this was interesting. I really like this aspect about what's your ideas about it. I want it to be in, in just that interesting enough but not blatant enough so that people not necessarily have to sweat bullets trying to think about what I mean. I want them to be like, hey, that's actually kind of cool. What else happens? Tell me the next part. All right, so if we basically have everything trying to build up, how do you feel about deconstructions? When people basically, instead of trying to build up a character and build up a type of story, they actually do the exact opposite, which is to break it down to its simplest parts and point out why these don't necessarily work that well. Like how they did with uh, Mystery Men, for example. Mystery Men. I am not familiar with that franchise. Uh, basically, a Ben Stiller movie, group of heroes. Um, how about Kick-Ass? Okay, yeah, parodies. Parodies is what we're talking about. Just to show the flaws. Okay, yeah, those, those are definitely a necessary part of any system. They have to point out... Um, I play Dungeons and Dragons a lot, sometimes way too much, and I had a conversation with one of my longtime uh, tabletop RPG friends, and he said, most of the movies that you see out there about Dungeons and Dragons are made by people who play Dungeons and Dragons who poke fun at the stereotype of Dungeons and Dragons. It is so cheesy, it is so corny, it is almost painful to watch, but it helps show the certain aspects that are absolutely ludicrous in D&D, like over-the-top descriptions, over-the-top names of items and things that are just, like, trying to be so serious, they're corny. And things like Kick-Ass and other parts of that genre definitely show, like, oh my goodness, we have yet another edgy rendition of Batman, or we have yet another interaction with somebody who's been irradiated and gotten superpowers when in reality they die of radiation sickness in like a week so there's characters like deadpool that everyone now knows like the ones that are less serious and point out the flaws are necessary for the continued growth of the genres because one you have to be easy going enough to realize your faults kind of laugh them off and even accept that some of the times they're funny or they're just they're just too much and you have to be able to move on from that so those parodies i i keep calling them parodies because that's what it's, it's solidified in my mind as those parodies help us grow by pointing out our faults and where we can strengthen a story or maybe do a little bit better on our storytelling because 
literally every form of communication is going to have its breakdowns. Um, it's always going to be harder to try to make a story for everyone, which you shouldn't do because not everyone is interested in the same thing, which goes back to our branding topic. But sometimes you just need a, uh, a, a bloodbath-filled video game like Doom, something that's just so simplistic, so almost mind-numbingly boring in regards to uh, very detailed story, but it's still entertaining. And stuff like the old cartoons like Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry, they were simplistic. They were funny. They didn't have like a, this overarching story, but they were still good content. They were they were enjoyable. People grew up watching them, and it's like, I can sit down, watch one episode of Tom and Jerry. I don't need to know anything else about the series. And I think that's kind of where we get things like story anthologies. People want this bite-sized content. We're getting back to it with like short stories, TikToks, all these things that are super, super short form. Something that I can sit down and I've seen the entire story once before. And I've, this is a nice take on it. And after that, I may never continue the story because the story ends with then one small episode. I think that embodies what uh, the deconstructionist element. It's like, we're never going to revisit these characters again. You might come back and read the story again, but beyond this, this is the life of the character. This is all you need to see of that particular aspect of their life or their, uh, their one interaction. It's like, well, that's it. You had a good time, you had a good run, and it prevents the uh, the other bane of just filler content. Well, I have to put something out, so uh, what, what happens? Oh, he's attacked by clowns. Maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just like, okay, where did that come from? That brings up the, um, the one problem with writing of the, the DSX Machina, the god out of the machine, where it's like everything – in a story points to its conclusion to an extent and you need to be able to like, okay, you start figuring out how this is going to end. Even if I've seen the story a billion times in a billion different ways, I know how it's going to end. And then it gets that satisfaction compared to the DSX Machina trope of suddenly something, which is not hinted at at all, completely off the wall. And just this surprise, right hook to your psyche is, Sometimes people can pull that off. Sometimes that's necessary. But for most parts of what I've seen of successful stories being written, the only reason to have a DSX Machina is to have that over-the-top parody. It's like, well, we couldn't figure out what how the story is, so everybody died. Okay. Yeah, it used to be it was the... They'd build up everything, like you point out, to paint themselves into a corner, and then they'd have to bring something in, like the governor or the king, to basically bring things out. So it sort of got interesting. You see that in Shakespeare. I mean, you don't really see that in Shakespeare a lot, which is sort of cool. But when you do, it's pretty obvious. Like the uh, prince at the end of Romeo and Juliet. But, yeah, it's definitely one of the more more interesting tropes that we're on. Glad to see we're seeing a little bit less of. Yeah, it definitely indicates 
It, sorry, it, de- it definitely is, in my opinion, a kind of an indication of bad writing. Not bad in that the the story itself is bad or the application is bad. It's just that there, there's a little bit of planning that goes on. At least when I'm writing a story, I have the beginning and I have the end. And then throughout the entirety of me figuring out what happens between those two, I shape what kind of comes out to focus in on the conclusion that I was going for. Or I might find that that conclusion was wrong and I have to make a different conclusion, but I want to have that kind of lenticular shape and that it ends it ends in this specific spot and it starts in this specific spot. But the journey that you take to between those two points doesn't necessarily have to be straight. I do this a lot when I'm running a, a D&D game in that the players have free agency. I even find when I'm writing stories by myself that the characters that I build and use, they start to have kind of a life of their own. And as that life uh, happens and as the next chapter of their being comes out, maybe the end is different. Maybe the end has a different meaning than when I started. Maybe the end has a happier ending than I expected, or maybe it has gone down so much for that character that the ending is a tearjerker or something that's like, you know they're not going to recoup from this as well as you thought. Or maybe they maybe they just shrug it off and it sets up from the next story. Or it creates an entire different arc that you can explore in a different section. So what do you do when the story starts going off track? I mean, we both Basically, both DM D and D, so we both know there's always going to be those times when the players go start looking in different areas than they're supposed to, and takes the adventure going an entirely different direction. In that situation, how would you get the story back on track? Well, I take the approach of all roads lead to Rome, so I give them the illusion of choice. So they might go and spend, you know, three, four months in game exploring one of the towns that I had when I want them to be three towns over. Uh, I use the, the amount of effort that they're putting into that. I use that to set up and leave very subtle hints to carefully, uh, kind of like breadcrumbs to carefully lead them toward the place that I want them to be. How quickly they follow those hints and how quickly they follow those breadcrumbs, uh, all depends on the player. And I've had a lot of really good like side quests go on where people are interested in something and they're they're trying to uh achieve this one singular goal that isn't the point of the entire campaign, but it helps build up and helps prepare them for that end of that campaign. So I use whatever efforts they're putting themselves into to to curve them toward where I want them to go. I don't forcibly push them into it. I make them think that they're it's their choice to go along that path, but little do they know that I'm shaping that path for the uh, the outcome that I would prefer or the, the situation that I want to put them in. So uh, a perfect example that I have is um, they, one of their, one of the PCs had died. He rolled out a new character, and that that previous character they had was resurrected and was doing things in an entirely different area of the map, 
or an entirely different country in the game. And so they're having a, a gay old time uh, running around in the, the three major cities that they've been going back and forth between for a long time now. And uh, suddenly, since they have been contracted by the king previously, he asked them to go and explore uh, or go as a delegation to one of his allies that just so happens to be in that area where that previous player character is running around doing things. So they get sent on a diplomatic mission. They find the individual who they think they're supposed to talk to, but that's the wrong individual. They're talking to uh, someone who they thought was this big old king, and they find out that, oh, there's two kings in this land, and they have to go and talk to the other one, this this ancient uh, being of magic deep in the forests. And that individual tells them, hey, we have reports of individuals doing something down in the south. Perhaps that's something you're interested in exploring because they might be a, a useful ally. And as they go check out those stories, they find this previous player character going about his business, his memories wiped, his uh, his overall appearance has been changed significantly, and he's in an entirely new class for from a game perspective. But he's a changed version of what they knew before, and that whole storyline that I was playing for that character of him eventually becoming uh, maybe a king, because that was one of the, uh, the things I discussed with the players, like, I want to be the ruler of a certain area. Maybe I'm the next, I'll be the next king on the throne of this land. But that's changed significantly once that player death occurred. And as that happened, the story changed. So instead of him being uh, a young noble who's looking to become the next king, he's now a uh, holy avenger coming from beyond the grave in order to finish what he was doing when he was alive, although he's still alive he's not a revenant before his resurrection his plans and his his will was different so before he was i'm the i'm the nice noble guy who's uh, upholding the idea of the rule of law and that i am this i am i am the state is pretty much the way he played him but on the inside it's like i am also fed up with all your bullcrap and i really don't like all this bureaucracy but I'll make a, a face of liking and making my uh, my bows when I need to. In this new rendition of that character, it's very much I am here to achieve the goal no matter how I do it as long as the greater good is served. And that's creating a little bit of uh, friction in the party because uh, that character is like, OK, well, it's for the greater good. I'm going to use my warlock abilities to summon a demon and fight all these bad guys. Meanwhile, another part of the party is a hell-bent cleric, and it's like, I don't want to have anything to do with demons or devils. Why are you doing this? Well, yeah, it's definitely always, trying, always fun trying to figure out ways to get things on track. Mm-hmm. That's sort of why I like keeping... That's why I love outlines. Yeah, outlines are absolutely necessary when you're making your first attempt at writing or even just uh, a research paper. They help give you a very good idea of where you should be going, how you should be getting there, and it, it generally limits your options. 
but not having infinite options isn't always a good thing. That's something to remember. That's why, for me, like the seven basic plots, the 22 basic stories is such a useful tool because, like, I want to tell a story, but I don't know where to start. Well, here are some people who kind of figured out that there are certain plot lines that you can follow, and that narrows it down so that instead of a billion options, you've got six, 16, which is – think of it this way. If you go out and have something at a fast food restaurant, there's like 30 different options. You're probably going to have the same two each and every time. You might try something new. But you generally focus in on one part of the menu and even then focus in on maybe three things on that small part of the menu. So people can get overwhelmed with the choices they have to make. So it's easier just to limit the amount of choices you have to decide on. And that makes it easier for you to to prioritize and work out the solution rather than being, oh, my goodness, uh, 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 what do we do? What do we do? So. Going back to the D&D thing, when I'm starting new players, uh, I give them uh, a rabbit to chase, metaphorically speaking. I give them something that's going to get their attention, and it's going to kind of guide their actions. So instead of being in an open world, there's nothing but possibilities. And sometimes I've been in certain situations as a player where since there are so many options, no one really had a goal or something to do. We just sat around for 30 minutes having our characters sit around for 30 minutes in game, not really doing much of anything. So you have to have for your story, whether it's D&D or comic, you have to have some sort of goal or some sort of problem that needs to be solved. It doesn't have to be a big problem. It doesn't have to be aliens invading the world. How do we stop this? It has to be, well, I'm hungry. What, what do we go and have to eat? Well, there's a number of options. And then we follow the process of trying to figure out, okay, what do we do to have something to eat? And it might have a, a left turn in there all of a sudden where, oh, my goodness, the place we decided to eat is closed. What are all our, our alternatives? So we continue the, the fetch quest of getting food. And, and it's this kind of like – we take this simplistic idea and we can twist it in such a way that it makes this very intricate picture and allows us to take limited options and lead them to the, the next option set that we need to fill out in order to create the rest of the story. So those basic plots, those, those basic problems that we, uh, will generate or find for our story sets us on a path and depending on how many problems we encounter along the way determines how long that path is, how long that story is going to be and how complex that, that interaction with the characters is going to be. All right, cool. Uh, just cause that time, uh, any final thoughts? Uh, always keep creating something, uh, there, you might have ten ideas. Five of them might be crap, but the other five might be solid gold. So, always continue to explore and try to develop them because one of them just might stick. All right, cool. And where can we find you? You can find me on WordPress at the Gentlemen's University of Manliness. Uh, I cover 
D&D things and how that can be applied to our daily lives and leadership, pretty much all aspects of life, giving people the mental tools they need to be able to survive in the modern world. You can also follow my D&D campaigns on the Gamer's Tale YouTube channel. Uh, you can actually see that player death in the Forging the Onyx campaign. It's a lot of content, and it is been going on over a year, but is totally worth it in my opinion. You get to see some very amusing interactions with the players. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. I had a good time. This episode of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews is brought to you by Podfaves.com. You love podcasts, but it's hard finding that next bingeable show. Podfaves has taken out the guesswork by easily identifying the best podcasts out there, so you can spend less time searching and more time listening. That's P-O-D-F-A-V-S dot com. And that's our show. For those interested in supporting the show, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. It features minicasts, next episode, and unedited interviews, and I'm working on transcripts of the various shows. We also have an Alexis app offering two-minute minicasts offering writing and business tips, as well as affirmations to keep you writing. We also have curated playlists on YouTube, with all the shows broken down to different playlists based on topic. It also includes a good part of available minicasts, as well as the Alexis briefs. So please support our Patreon page, download the Alexis app, and subscribe to the YouTube channel, and please talk to us on Facebook. Thank you, and have a great day.